he whispered. He brushed away the tear and made a promise only prayer would help him keep. Nothing like that is going to happen. I'll never leave you. We're staying right here. He pulled the Afghan tighter around them, sealing out the chill that slowly descended on the room as the fire waned. They sat in silence for a long time, long enough for the fire to go out, and then he helped her off the couch and took her to bed. What do inspired nurse writers with their own nonprofit organization have to say about Alzheimer's disease? Let's talk all about it with Marianne Shuko of Owl's Authors, right here on episode 366 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello there. This is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I share education ideas, frequent diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people out there. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you find value in the show, Please consider this request of becoming a patron at patreon.com. It really helps me create and continue to bring you more and more episodes of the show and expand the audience. It's at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. You can always listen for free, but if you want to pledge a little something, even $2 a month, it really helps the show. And if you want to pledge more, there's lots of prizes and special things from me to thank you for your support. You can also support the show by becoming a client or referring anyone you'd like to Nurse Keith Coaching for Holistic Career Coaching with me. Just have them or yourself or your dog or whoever email me at keith at nursekeith.com to schedule a complimentary chat. And if you mention the show, you can get 10% off your first coaching package. And as I said, today we're talking about Alzheimer's disease with Marianne Shuko. She is from All's Authors, which is a nonprofit she has created to support writers who write about Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And Marianne, there's a lot to talk about, but I want to begin with your nursing journey and where you've been over the years in terms of what your nursing career has looked like for you and how it has been for you. Hi, Keith. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate your time. I have had a rather odd nursing journey in that I never wanted to be a nurse. In fact, in in high school, when I went for career counseling, my guidance counselor said, well, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a writer. And he said, I think you'll be a good nurse. Well, I didn't like that at all. And I went off to college and studied English so I could learn how to be a writer and um, embarked on that. And as it usually does, it doesn't didn't work out for me. So at that time, I did some other uh, jobs with nonprofits and I didn't really like to be in the business world. I wanted to help people. So I was wondering, gee, you know, I wonder you know, what can I do to help people? And at the time, there was a nursing shortage. And I thought, well, maybe I ought to be a nurse. So Mr. Firing was right, the guidance counselor. So I ended up going to nursing school um, in upstate New York. I became an LPN. And uh, in order to finance that, I worked as a nursing assistant in several long-term care facilities, mainly with people with dementia. Hmm. And I worked for several years as a medical surgical nurse in hospital. And then I became a registered nurse. And I continue to work uh, on the medical floors, mainly as a float. I like to float. I learned a lot of different things. There was no rut. I always had new people uh, everywhere, my patients, my coworkers, and I enjoyed that. And then I ended up wandering into case management. And I did that for several years. And my nursing career, unfortunately, at the hospital ended because I was injured and out for a couple of years. And when I re-entered the workforce, it was as a college nurse. So I now work at a community college in the wellness center. Oh, okay. So you're still working as a nurse. And yes. have you ever written a memoir about being a reluctant nurse? No, but it might be a good one. Yeah. The reluctant mm-hmm. nurse. Yeah. The journey, <laughs> the journey of a nurse writer. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
Yeah. So that reluctance was there, but eventually you circled back to it and you have worked with people with dementia throughout your career in different capacities, correct? Yes. And what what is it about dementia and Alzheimer's that has captured your attention and your heart over the years? Is there something specific or a story that is kind of the kernel or at the heart of your connection with, with this disease process that affects so many of us these days? When I was first exposed to it, my very first job in nursing was as a nursing assistant in a long-term care facility. And I remember when I went on my interview there, I got a tour of the facility, but she didn't want to take me up to the third floor. She said, that's the dementia ward, but we're not going to go up there. And then when I started working, my coworkers, they would get floated up to the third floor and they'd be angry. And they'd say to me, oh, you never want to go up to the third floor. They're going to float you up there. You'll someday you'll get up there, but you don't want to work up there. So I had no idea what was going on. And one night they said, we need you to go upstairs and help on the third floor because somebody called out sick. So I went up there, the steps, I'm going, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen to me? And I went in there and I mean, it was just the best place. I loved it. I loved the patients. Um, you know, one of the things I say, because, you know, nursing is so demanding and patients can be demanding. The Alzheimer's and dementia patients, they were not demanding. They needed care. Mm-hmm. You worked hard. You had to do a lot. But they would they were just, you know, happy for you to be there for the most part. So I really enjoyed that. And from that point on, I said, I will always work here. And I ended up getting there and I would work extra hours and extra shifts. And um, there was actually that particular dementia unit was more for people in the latter stages. There was another unit that had people who were in the mid stage and I would go there as well. And that was in 1990. And I remember those people, their faces and their names, they had a major impact on me. So what did you witness among those people that has really stuck with you? You remember their faces, which I, I can picture certain patients' faces too from over mm-hmm. the years. But what is it about their struggles, their family struggles, the the course of the disease? You know, what are the processes that have have really informed so much about who you are and what you do and how you think now? Well, so often many of the the patients had been left there and didn't have family. So I felt like I could be their family, that I was a person that they would see once a day or, you know, when I was working and spend time with them. And they, I knew that they recognized a familiar face and they didn't know who I was. And I guess I'm a caregiver. So I didn't mind the caregiving tasks that some people maybe not don't want to do. I mean, at the time I was in a nursing assistant, I wasn't the nurse, so I had a different role. And um, one of the things I would do is I would, I would make a plan every day on my way in that I was going to be nice to a patient that nobody liked. And they were patients like that, you know, the ones that were demanding maybe or just were not pleasant. So I'd say, okay, I'm going to be nice to so-and-so tonight. I'm going to do something special for them. So I would oh, do that sweet. as well. Yeah, and work with the families too, because the families um, often needed support as well. They wanted to know that their loved one was okay and treat people kindly and with respect as well. I'm, they would, you know, not everybody does. And people who work in facilities know that not everybody treats the patients the way they should be treated, but I yeah. try to do my best. It sounds like dignity was really important to you in mm-hmm. relation to the care you were providing and the relationships you created. Is that is that pretty close to kind of what was one of your driving, I guess we could say motivators? I think so. Um, my aunt had Alzheimer's. So mm-hmm. she was my first exposure. My mother's sister, she was 15 years older than my mom. Mm-hmm. And a, a main fixture in my life, always somebody that was full of love, somebody that I would want to be with. And we had special times together. She's very good to me. And when I saw her, you know, in this disease and she didn't know me anymore and she was in a nursing facility, I knew how I felt to see that, to lose that connection. And so I brought that with me when I went to work. 
Yeah. And, you know, you, you initially started out as an English major because you wanted to be a writer and your guidance counselor, you know, said what he said. And those voices can, can hold a lot of weight with us for a while, but eventually, like you say in your bio, you were studying uh, English at UMass Boston. Um, I went to UMass Amherst, by the way. Okay, um, great. Yeah, and you worked as a newspaper reporter in New England, mm-hmm. and then you became a registered nurse because you needed to avoid poverty. You needed to yeah. make a living, and then you found something that really worked for you. I mean, working with these people on that floor sounds like it was very formative, and obviously has had a lasting impact because of what you do now. Yes. And speaking of what you do now, you've written a book, which I've read. I read the Kindle version. Thank you for sending that to me. It's a beautiful book. It's called Blue Hydrangeas. And it is very, um, very much based in New England. So it's close to my heart, you know, Cape Cod. So the descriptions of New England just mean a lot to me, having lived in Massachusetts for many, many years before I was here in the desert. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, you call it an Alzheimer's love story. Right. And it was published in 2013. Well, were there stories you'd written prior to that? Or did this one just kind of come out? Was this the first story that you decided needed to be told? Yeah, that was my first story. When mm-hmm. I had decided, it was always a lifelong dream to write a book. So when I decided mm-hmm. at that point in time, 2002, I was going to write a book. Mm-hmm. I started with a different story and it was about a nurse and it was just wasn't going anywhere. So one day I'm at work and I was um, covering for a case manager in the rehab unit. And she had this patient all set up the next day to be discharged to a, a nursing facility for more rehab. And I just stepped into the room to just go over the plan with her and her husband. And their son was there. And this couple just captivated me. And she had Alzheimer's and she was very beautiful. And she would smile and laugh. And and she kept saying, oh, I'm so mixed up. And her husband would stand next to the bed and he'd just smile at her. And the thing about them was that uh, the two of them had driven from Florida to New York all by themselves. And I just couldn't believe that they'd managed this long trip when nothing bad happened. But and after they got home, something bad happened because she fell and she fractured her pelvis. And that's why she was there. So the next day she's supposed to go to this nursing facility and her son, who was all business said to me, I don't want, I want my mother to come with me to the facility. I'm going to drive her there. I don't want her to go with my father. Is that okay? I said, sure. What, you know, whatever you want to do, that's your prerogative. So, um, after I left them that day, I started thinking about it and I was wondering, gee, what would happen if she did leave with her husband? Where would they go? What would they do? And so that was the start of my story in um, Blue Eye Dranges because a similar thing happens with this couple. And the father does show up on discharge day to take his wife, who did not have a fractured pelvis, but had injured herself, but was ambulatory. And the two of them went off. And uh, that's like the gist of the story. Yeah. 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 And it's a beautiful story. And I remember writing to you after I'd finished it because I cried at the end, Mm. actually several times because my my dad died basically from complications of dementia on his 90th birthday, uh, May 5th, uh, 2020, just at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, he died in the hospital. And so it touched me on many levels. And all of his, two of his his two older sisters both had dementia and both died ostensibly from complications of dementia. Mm-hmm. So it it means a lot to me that you decided to tell this story from the perspective of a couple who are, you know, coping, struggling with the sort of the oncoming crashing waves of dementia and fitting because they live on the ocean. So that metaphor just came to me, but I would love for you to read the prologue uh, just to kind of set up the story. And then I I do recommend people buy the book because it's well worth reading, but could you read the prologue for us? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Great. Thank you. Okay. 
While night settled on blue hydrangeas, Jack and Sarah lay nestled on the couch, wrapped in a hand-knit afghan and clinging to each other as silent as stones. The lights were out, a crackling fire lit the room and shadows danced on the walls. He cradled her in his arms and stared into space, detached. She focused on the fire, unyielding in his embrace, so far away. The Bach he had put on the CD player had long ended. Outside, the first snowfall of winter blanketed Cape Cod. He had done all he could to make this evening the same as any other, but this god-awful quiet made everything seem so wrong. After 45 years of marriage, it wouldn't have surprised him if they had run out of things to say, but not a day ended without some new insight or tidbit of information passing between them. They shared everything, their deepest fears, their most private thoughts. Tonight, there was nothing, just this palpable silence as they ruminated separately on their visit to Dr. Fallon and the horrifying news he had given them. Jack pondered the same troublesome thoughts over and over, making no progress in absorbing the doctor's diagnosis. He knew enough about Alzheimer's to fill him with fear, a fear he had not experienced since his days as a medic in World War II. Back then, he had lived in anticipation of the next strike, the next slew of injured and casualties. He could not sleep. He could not eat. Uncertainty consumed every moment. Sarah's Alzheimer's filled him with the same fear and anxiety. He did not know what to expect or when or how bad it would be. Some situations defy words, and there were no words, no phony reassurances to make this right. If there were, he could not pretend to know them. The room grew dark as the fire burned low. The logs he had stoked an hour before were turning to ash. Neither of them had the drive or the energy to get up and throw on another log. At last, she broke through the mournful silence. I'm going to lose everything, she said, her voice a hoary whisper, a voice he had never heard before. Don't say that, he started, but she interrupted. Whatever happens, she said, stay with me. I can't bear to suffer through this without you. A single tear rolled down her cheek. Shh, he whispered. He brushed away the tear and made a promise only prayer would help him keep. Nothing like that is going to happen. I'll never leave you. We're staying right here. He pulled the Afghan tighter around them, sealing out the chill that slowly descended on the room as the fire waned. They sat in silence for a long time, long enough for the fire to go out. And then he helped her off the couch and took her to bed. That really sets the scene for what follows in mm. this beautiful book. And it it tells the story of the two of them. Obviously, that's the focus. And it does bring the son in because the son does figure in the in the story and the, the doctor and you know everything that happens in the interim. And it's I mean, it's a pretty universal story, isn't it? In terms of not just dementia, but aging and aging together. Oh, yes, definitely. I like I look at that as that that was the moment when they enter into the winter of their marriage. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that section is his first act as the caregiver when he mm -hmm. took her to bed. Right. And that that's sort of uh, that foreshadows the caregiving that that follows mm -hmm. and that escalates basically as she devolves within her her disease and it's i mean how how prevalent is alzheimer's and dementia let's say in our society right now in 2022 how much of it are we seeing out there well, the alzheimer's association says it's at 6.4 million individuals mm -hmm. And okay. about um, more than about twice that of family caregivers that are providing unpaid care. Mm -hmm. Right. And what do you think personally? This is just your opinion as a nurse and a citizen and as, as a person of the care that's being provided in general for people with dementia in the United States right now. Is it adequate? Is there something we're missing are there are there things that need to change for people like Jack and Sarah? It's very inadequate. Mm -hmm. Many people more. receive 
yeah, many people, you know, will go to a doctor and receive a diagnosis of dementia. Uh, could mm-hmm. be Alzheimer's, frontotemporal lobe, Lewy body. There are many kinds, mild cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. And then they're sent on their way with no guidance, no instructions, no resources, and left to flounder. We hear this all the time in our organization and amongst the authors who have written books. And that's why we started this organization to help people because they just couldn't get the information that they need. They don't know where to go. They don't know where to look. It would be very easy to give somebody the number to the local Alzheimer's Association or to the Office for Aging, but that even seems to be too much in many situations. So people are just left on their own. Um, savvy people will know to go online and start looking for resources. And in my story, Jack goes to the library um, because it's really kind of pre-internet time in that story. And he goes to the library and looks up what he can find out and what he learns. He is dismayed with the truth of the, the facts, but he makes that effort. There's not enough care for um, not enough caregivers out there that are well-trained and know how to handle patients with um, Alzheimer's and dementia. And if you can find them, they cost a lot of money. So it's a situation where people who are well off or have long-term care insurance, they can provide care at home and people who don't, they can't. So many people are left having to, you know, quit their job to stay home, take care of their spouse, their parent. Some people are raising children at the same time that they're trying to care for a parent. It's just a recipe for disaster and um, something has to change. Yeah, that's true. And you started a nonprofit named All's Authors, A-L-Z mm-hmm. Authors, because you wanted to address this on a certain level from certain angles. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about All's Authors And I want to talk about the books that are featured there in your podcast and some other things that I'd like to run by you as a fellow writer and nurse. So when we come back, we can address all of those and more. How does that sound? Wonderful. All right. Thank you, Marianne. So stick with us and we'll be right back for the second half of episode 366 of The Nurse Keith Show. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember, the show notes will be located at nursekeith.com forward slash Alzheimer's. That's nursekeith.com forward slash Alzheimer's. And we're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend, Marianne Shuko, nurse, writer, and the founder of allsauthors.com. So we will talk about that momentarily. So Marianne, before the break, you read the beautiful prologue from your wonderful book, Blue Hydrangeas. And I wanted to point out that Blue Hydrangeas is the name of the home where Jack and Sarah live on the ocean in Cape Cod. And it's, um, it's a bread and breakfast. That's kind of what they do. 
And I've, I've stayed in and seen many bed and breakfasts just like that, the way you describe it in the book in New England. So it's very quintessential New England, isn't it? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, it's very, very cozy kind of feeling if anyone listening has, you know, done the bed and breakfast thing in New England, you really capture it really well in your book. And let's, let's talk about writing for a second. So you always wanted to be a writer. You went to um, UMass Boston to study English and this was your first book and you've written more books since then in short stories. And what is the writer's life like for you personally? You know, how does writing weave its way into your life? Because there's a lot of nurses out there and listeners who either are writers or who would like to be. So how does it, how does it manifest for you on a, say, on a day-to-day basis? I don't write on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. I don't really have the time, basically, mm-hmm. because I'm running this nonprofit and I have a job. However, today I did pick up my my Mac and start working on a book I have in progress, which is a prequel to this story called mm. A Wedding at Blue Hydrangeas. So I let's I'm on like the last chapter. I have to write the last chapter. It's been I've been stuck there for months. So I finally made up my mind that this week I'm gonna finish this and get it done. But um I'm I'm I don't like the writing of filling up the blank pages with letters and words is more daunting to me than the revision process. I'm, I'm like different than some authors. I really like the revision process and I have a great system in place for that. And I find that you can make the book come alive. It's just hammering out that first draft, that skeleton I find to be um, challenging. Mm-hmm. And so um I'm working on that now. And then the next process will be the revision part of it. And when I wrote this first book, I mean, I, I had finished, started it in 2002 and I finished it in 2004 and I didn't publish it until 2013. It was a long, long journey. And over the years, I kept going back to it and revising and changing things around and trying to get publication through um, mainstream publishing and it didn't work out. So I finally decided to put it through Kindle. Kindle Direct Publishing to Amazon and published it that way. But I was at one point, you know, I I had mentioned to you earlier that that prologue, it took years Mm -hmm. to write that prologue. Mm -hmm. And there was at one point I had all the chapters of the book laid out on the floor in my living room and I was putting them in order that Mm -hmm. way. So like the whole first half of the book is leading up to the event when Jack and Sarah abscond from the nursing facility that he refuses to put her in and go on their journey, um, trying to reclaim their past. Yes. To revisit the past and reclaim the future. I think that's how it says. And then the son gets involved and, and then we're like one day, um, the story takes place over five summer days. And so this is the one day when he has to find where his parents are and he's, you know, very traumatized by the fact that they're unaccounted for. And, um, it was, you know, it was, you, you dream of writing. If you're, you know, if somebody wants to write a book, you dream about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to write a book. And then the first time I ever printed it out and ha- held it in my hand, it was like 120 typed pages. Wow. That was a thrill. And then the next thrill comes when you open the box from the publisher and, and you see them all in there. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty exciting. And that never gets old. So yeah. It's a long thing. And then the hard part is to market the book. That's the challenge. And as hard as it is to create that and, and get the finished product in your hand, it can take years, took me years. Now you have to figure out, well, how do I get it into the hands of readers? That was the biggest challenge. Yes. You want eyeballs on your book because you wrote it because you want people to be impacted by what you wrote because it's an important story. Exactly. And you're working mm-hmm. on the prequel, The Wedding at Blue Hydrangeas, but you also wrote another prequel, right? Called uh, Christmas mm-hmm. at Blue Hydrangeas. So yeah. how did how did that come about? You wanted to create something to set the story up even, even more from the kind of like the story leading up to the, the main book that we, that I just read? 
Yeah, because um, reviewers and, you know, people would read the book and they'd say, I want to know more about blue hydrangeas. They wanted to know about the inn. Mm -hmm. I want to visit it, people would say. Where is it? <laughs> I said, well, it's in my head. It doesn't really exist. Even when I would visit Cape Cod, I'd look, you know, we'd be driving and I'd see if I could find it. It's like, which one, you know. I used to Google and see if maybe there was a place called blue hydrangeas, but there isn't. Mm -hmm. So um, I thought about it and I said, maybe I should write some more books that take place at the end. Well, they're not going to be book. They're not going to come after the fact that, you know, the late Alzheimer's um, really with Jack and Sarah, their story ended in, in that, you know, that part of their life. But I thought, you know, I went back in, into the earlier days with the inn and came up with the idea of the Christmas story because Christmas stories are very popular. So it's 1978 in this story, long before the dementia sets in and they are, they're new in the house. They've only had like one or two seasons of having guests in their beautiful home that they built. And it's right after the, the same year as the blizzard of 78, which um, if you were in New England, you might remember, which was a deadly blizzard in February. This is the second blizzard that hits on Christmas Eve. So we see Sarah in the house and she's, getting ready for the holiday, waiting for her son and her husband to arrive there. One's, one's coming from New York and the other's coming from Boston. So she's prepping for them and she ends up with unexpected guests. And uh, part of the main thrust of that story is just showing how kind and giving she is. And the door is always open. She says, if we don't have room for others, we make it. And the same thing happens in a wedding at Blue Hydrangeas, which happens later on, because in the Christmas story, her son is supposed to bring a friend home for the holidays. And she's assuming it's going to be a, a man, a guy from college, and it's a woman. And that turns out to be his future wife. So the next book, I'm, what I'm doing now, is about their wedding. And once again, she has unexpected guests, <laughs> makes room, and all kinds of calamity ensues because of him. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's really very cute. There's like a oh, lot going on. I like, um, I like it. I like them. They, they, you know, they're good people. Yeah, they're likable characters <laughs> and very realistic. Yeah. And so let let's talk about the nonprofit and the other authors. So you created a nonprofit with two women you met on Twitter. Is that true? And how did that, that is very, all very true. come about? Tell me it's about crazy. that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because we're like all like middle-aged and everybody tells you, don't, um, don't ever meet up with people that you meet online. Well, we did that and um, it worked out. So what happened was I had mentioned that it was really hard to market a book about Alzheimer's. It was a novel. I couldn't get anybody to even publish it for me. They wouldn't even read it. And so um, I had joined a group called Clean Indie Reads, which was on Facebook. It was an author group. And the whole point was for authors to help support each other by promoting each other's books and helping each other learn publishing and marketing and all that. And I was active in that and I um, got a lot out of it. So I thought about it one day and I said, gee, wouldn't it be great if I could find some other authors who have written books about Alzheimer's and dementia and maybe we could do the same thing? So I had met a woman online who had reached out to me because she loved my story and she had written her own. And she asked me to, to look at it for her, to do her, to review it. And I did. And that was Jean Lee. Her book is called Alzheimer's Daughter. And I loved her book and told her that. And then when I was thinking about reaching out to people to work with me, I thought of her. So I asked her, would you like to get together and work on doing some cross promotion? And she loved the idea. And I said, do you know anybody else that might want to do this? And she did. She knew someone named Vicki Tapia who had written a memoir, Somebody Stole My Iron. Both her memoir and Jean's is about caring for two parents with, with dementia at the same time. And um, the three of us got together and ran a one month campaign, helping to you know tweet each other's stories and blogging for each other and doing all that. And we really enjoyed it and we liked each other a lot. So when November that year, we did it again because it's Caregiver Appreciation Month. And then the next year in June rolls around because June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. We got together and said, why don't we start a blog? Why don't we have a new book every day, Monday through Friday in June? And we'll ask the authors to write us a blog post about their book. And we'll do it that way. So we did. And at the end of the month, we had we still had books to put up 
and we had such a good time. We said, well, let's just keep it going. And um, we didn't know how long it would last, but we enjoyed doing it. So we said, let's just do it once a week. So that was in um, June of 2016. And we're still going. Now we have over 300 authors. We have a bookstore. We have a podcast. We have all kinds of social media going on. We have virtual events. We teach um, our, our authors um basics of marketing and publishing a book we do some, mm. you know classes i just did one the other day on how to get book reviews and we're just very supportive and our goal is to elevate the books about alzheimer's and, and dementia so people can find them so the the we have two audiences we have our authors who um we work to help provide them with guidance and support but we're, the ultimate goal is to put the books into the hands of caregivers and others concerned about dementia so that they can find them. It's a lot easier to find books on our site than it is on Amazon, because if you go to Amazon and you type in a book about Alzheimer's, you're going to get a million hits. Mm-hmm. But on our site, you can go into our indexing and write, you know, I'm looking for a book about caring for your father or caring for someone with Lewy body disease. And you're going to get a, a, a good selection of books that have already been vetted for you, quality, That's their quality resources. Yeah, yeah. We, we do like to buy direct from authors rather than Amazon if we can. Mm-hmm. And I do recommend people go to Alls Authors, A-L-Z Authors.com, where you can mm-hmm. search for f- among those 300 books, or is it 300 authors? No, it's 300 authors, because some of the authors have more than one book, and mm-hmm. some of the authors have blogs. Mm-hmm. But the the links on the site will lead you to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay, you'll take and you'll buy from Amazon. Oh, I see. Okay, because we don't have we don't keep stock or anything I like see. that. So we're still buying so from would, Amazon, but still we you wanna, still buy, right? But we do want to go to your website in order to learn about to the find books. it. Yeah, so you and then offer, you. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, when you go on the site, you can read about the book. The author has written a blog post that tells you about their dementia story and why they wrote the book. So that might help you in your decision making as to whether or not it's the the right book for you. Hmm. Because caregivers, they don't have a lot of time to read a lot of books if they're going to read it all. So they don't want to waste their time or money on a book that doesn't really res- resonate with them. True. True. And mm-hmm. the nonprofit obviously can accept donations. And what mm-hmm. do you do with tax deductible donations? And what's the, the bigger overarching goal of the nonprofit? We use donations to fund the website, which is the most important asset. And mm-hmm. it, the website grows every week because we have new books and new images, which make it really heavy. So we're constantly hitting our threshold and having to upgrade, upgrade, add new tools to keep it from, you know, to keep it functioning and to mm-hmm. f- fight off the, the bots because bots are a big problem. Yeah. Um, constantly attacking us. So we, we do that. And there's some funds um, are to support the podcast to support some of the tools that we use for social media. We use Canva. Mm-hmm. We, uh, they give us a free, um, a free account because That's we're a nonprofit, great. but we use some other tools um, to, to promote the website and to promote the authors that costs a little bit of money. So we use it for that. And we're working on some other new initiatives that really haven't been unveiled yet. Mm-hmm. But one of them is a program where we will be bringing real books to real people in real places, because right now we're solely virtual mm-hmm. and the books are electronic books, but we want to have a system in place where we can provide the physical copies of books to facilities and organizations that, you know, have people dealing with the dementias, frequenting them like care homes and um, senior centers or whatever. And, be able to find the books there and to you know borrow them and, and to read them and to use them. That's great. So physical books in people's real hands. And mm-hmm. tell me about the podcast. What's the purpose of the podcast and, and what is it called? The podcast is called Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia, an Alzheimer's mm-hmm. Authors podcast. And we created that because, sad to say, being book lovers, all of us who started this, it, we learned that people, a in, in this country at least, people don't read a lot. The average person reads about 12 books a year. And busy caregivers, whether they love to read or not, may not have time 
to, to read. Because when you want to read a book, you have to stop everything mm-hmm. and read the book. Mm-hmm. So somebody had approached us and said, why don't you guys do a podcast? And we tossed it around for a while before we finally said, you know, we, we should really do this because at least we know people would get the information that we have to offer, you know, orally and they can listen while they do something else. You know, you know that you're a podcaster. Yes. So, you know, when, when you can just listen and, and go about your business and drive or go to the grocery store, do laundry, cook, walk, anything. And continue to listen to something that may offer you some good information or entertain you at the least. So we decided, um, let's just, you know, see about doing this podcast. We'll do six episodes and see what happens. So I got selected as to be the podcaster. Not that I wanted to be. That was another job I went to reluctantly. The reluctant but, uh, podcaster, I, didn't, I, I see. I, did, I didn't. I I just was like, how am I going to learn how to do this? I don't want to spend the time. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm. 60 years old. I just want to coast. I don't want to have to pick up new skills, but they said, Marianne, you're the best one. You can do it. So I did it and it didn't take me too long. And it really wasn't that hard once I figured it all out and you got the right tools in place. And I mean, the, the biggest gift I have is I don't have to look for guests, which is like a lot of podcasts is that's their problem landing good guests. Cause I have 300 authors already in my, in my queue. That's great. So, uh, yeah, that's like, you know, they, it, I just pick and choose. And sometimes people ask, can I be on, when can I be on the podcast or can mm-hmm. I be on the podcast? It's like, yeah, you can be on the podcast. Sure. Right. So um, we used that. We did that. And then we started doing the virtual events. So we've had a couple of virtual events. The first virtual event, I want people to know they have to go and watch the video because we brought in five of our authors who all have Alzheimer's today to talk about what it's like to live with Alzheimer's disease. It's called Everything You Want to Know About Alzheimer's But We're Afraid to Ask. That's the name of it. It's on YouTube, on the Alzheimer's YouTube channel. There were five authors. Three of them were from the United Kingdom. There were three women and two men. And in different stages. And what the information that they shared, if you're working with elders or working in hospital or home care, or nursing long-term care with people who have dementia, then you should really listen to Mm. what they have to say. It will really open up your eyes. It was a beautiful hour that I spent with them. And then we did a second one just last month, and it was called Love Stories, Keeping Romance Alive in Dementia Care. And that was also terrific. We had um, two men and two women with their spouses who were still living and they talked about how they kept that connection going between them and their um, spouse um, in the face of dementia. Because sometimes when you become a caregiver, it obscures your role as wife or husband or lover. Mm-hmm. And that's something that gets lost. And so pe- there are ways for people to try to keep that going if exactly. they're looking for that or they miss that. So they shared a lot of, you know, personal, private information. And it was helpful. And the best thing about that is they were, they didn't know each other, any of these people, and they were all helping each other Yeah. during the show, offering right. each other advice. That's lovely. And um, those are all available on your website, or they can also find Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia, you know, on, through a podcast player, but I'm looking at them right now on your website. So they can find them there as well at All's Authors. So Marianne, before we go, and there's a lot more to talk about, but we have to go soon. Um, I have four quick questions I want to run by you. May I? Sure. Okay. So my first question for you, and these are ones I run by all my guests these days just for fun. And the first question is, how do you define success? What does that mean to you? It's not money. It's if I meet my goal. So... Mm My goal, like with all's authors, the goal there is to try to help as many caregivers as we can find information that's going to help them. Mm-hmm. And so I would measure success there by how many people listen to the podcast or how many people came to the visit the website or um, opened up the newsletter and things like that. Mm. Um, how many people have read my book and um, I, you know, when I get emails or see reviews of the book that people really liked it. It meant a lot to them or it brought back their own story and how accurate it was. That makes me feel like that I've been a success. 
So that's like impact and connection sounds like are important parts of success. Yeah. Yeah. And the next question is, um, how would you describe one person living or dead who's inspired you in the course of your life? Who is that person? That's a tough question. Hmm. I think because there's been um, many, you know, mm-hmm. who inspired me a lot was my dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about my that. dad. He, my dad was a reader. He was a very soft spoken man. My cousin called him a Renaissance man. He had lived a um, kind of a very lucky life, which was very short. He only, he died at 45 suddenly. Oh, wow. So um, my husband had once said to me, you know, don't, your father did more in 45 years and some people do in 90. So don't feel bad about that. But, you right. know, of course I miss him and everything, but my dad was somebody who, um, he loved um, books and he loved to learn and he loved artwork. And, um, what's the other thing? Oh, mm-hmm. classical music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a child, I grew up with classical music every night hearing hearing that put me to mm. sleep it was either that it was the boston bruins or the red sox but, and he was a he was a fisherman i've written about yeah. him on my blog many times mm. so um people can look at that but uh he really inspired me a lot and to, to work and to do because he was a man who he had been to europe in the service and did a lot of things and 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 he put that all aside when he became a father because he now had these responsibilities, you know, of, of providing a home and food on the table for his children. And he worked at a job that he didn't like that was not um, befitting his aspirations or his abilities, you know, his intellectual abilities. So he, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I know what that's like. So, you know, you plug away for years and years and years doing that because you have to, but then mm-hmm. when he'd come home, he had a much softer side. Well, it sounds like a lovely man. And um, if you think of it, mm-hmm. send me a couple links. I'd like to read about him. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, now, is there a book, because you're a writer, that really had a major impact on you or the way you think or live your life? Mm. I thought you were going to ask me a different question about a book. <laughs> In fact, of me, I'll tell you about the I'll tell you about the book that made me sit down and finally just finally write that book. So mm. I guess it did have a big impact on my life, and it's kind of a strange story because I was at the gym mm-hmm. and I was on the treadmill and I picked up a random copy of I think it was Woman's Day magazine and flipped through the pages and there was a excerpt from a book in there by an author named Elizabeth Berg, who was a nurse, and she's a huge best-selling author have written many, many books. It was called true to form. And I read that excerpt. And by the time I left that gym, I said, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to be a writer like Elizabeth Berg. That was my goal. Whether or not I am a writer like Elizabeth Berg, I don't know, but I, I mean, it spurred me on to write a book. So I, t- I even told her that. So um, that was a book that changed my life as far as like, I don't know what, how to live. I don't, know that I was inspired by a book. Yeah. Well, that sounds, that's great. That's wonderful. I love that answer. And finally, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 18 year old self right now, even if she wouldn't listen? (laughs) Stay true to yourself. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Stay true to yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I took a lot of like pathways to get to where I am now by following other people's advice. And, you know, I think a lot of times people, um, especially people who come from like working class families, a lot of their life decisions are dictated to them by circumstance, which is probably part of, you know, my situation. I wanted to be a writer. I had no connections. So even though I got a degree, didn't help me mystifying the guidance counselor wanted me to be a nurse, which some, I say to myself, gee, if I had just gone to, when I went to college to study nursing, I would have had a BSN. I would have had, you know, I would have been further along the career path, but of right. course at that time, that's not what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you, I ended up wasting a lot of time, not doing the things that I wanted to do, but then in the end, really in the end, it was because of the financial situation. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also if we go back to your definition of success, you've achieved it on many levels because you have touched the lives of so many people. So you've, you've circled back and done it, which is really, I guess, yeah. I guess I have. Yeah. And I really appreciate you being here and sharing the story and reading from the prologue and sending me the book, which is really wonderful. And I really want to point people to all's authors for support for the podcast, Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia, and then to buy the books that really mean something to you. And there's plenty of books out there to check out. So thank you so much, Marianne. This is wonderful. And I'm so glad you you found me and that we connected and um, we'll stay connected because you're doing great work in the world. Great. Thanks so much. And so are you too. Thank you. Doing, doing something just for nurses who are often so overlooked. Much. We thank the nurses for all their work, too. We do indeed. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Key Show. The show notes where you can learn all about Marianne Shuko and all's authors will be at nursekeith.com forward slash Alzheimer's. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from the show. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, please go to nursekeith.com. Mention the show or mention Marianne or mention all's authors and you get a 10% discount off your first coaching package. And if you want to become a patron at Patreon, that would be awesome. Head over to patreon.com forward slash nursekeith. We are a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy Spiesen as our stalwart social media and newsletter ringmaster. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by the musician Robert Fripp, one of my favorite quotes, may my living honor my parents, may my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And my friend Marianne Shuko saying arrivederci from upstate New York. Upstate New York. Thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you to everyone. Please go to nursekeith.com forward slash Alzheimer's to learn about Marianne. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side.